You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, we're delighted to welcome everyone to today's side event and discussion ahead of the Summit for Democracy, which President Biden is hosting later this week. My name is Lise Grande, and I'm the head of USIP, which was established by Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan, independent national institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping resolve violent conflict abroad. USIP is what's known as a think and do tank, which means that on the one hand, we produce research, consult widely, and provide policy recommendations. But as a do think tank, we also design, ground test, implement, and evaluate peacebuilding activities and programs on the ground in countries where conflict is likely already present or being resolved. Right now, the Institute has more than 300 programs and initiatives in 85 countries, and we have offices in 16, including Iraq, Libya, Colombia, Nigeria, Mali, Niger, Myanmar, and Sudan, among others. The aim of today's discussion is to focus on the links between democracy and peace. We're honored to have with us a singular and very distinguished group of civil society leaders and activists from five democratic countries, Ukraine, Nigeria, Colombia, the Philippines, and Iraq. There are two aspects of today's discussion. The first focuses on the pressures these five democracies are facing. Democracies are celebrated for being more internally peaceful than any other form of government because of their commitment to resolving grievances, disputes, and inequities through peaceful, inclusive, transparent institutions and mechanisms. Democracy is a constant struggle, however, and very often the mechanisms, the institutions, and the powers which preserve it come under pressure. Truthfully, there are times when these pressures are so acute, democratic structures start to fail, lose the confidence of their people, or worse, collapse altogether. This is why we've asked each of our speakers to share their views on the pressures that are undermining and threatening their democracies. The second aspect of our conversation focuses on the role that democracies play in securing global peace. One of the enduring principles of multilateralism is the commitment of democratic countries around the world to stand up for each other and protect each other's rights. Democracies need to help each other, and we especially need to do this when a sister democracy is under pressure or threat. This is why we've also asked our speakers to share candidly what they want the U.S. and other democratic countries to do to help them stay on the democratic path. The panelists joining us today are truly exceptional. We are honored to welcome Oleksandra Mafichuk, who is the chair of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine. We're delighted to welcome Idiat Hassan, the director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Nigeria. 
We're very pleased that Maria Jimenez Duzan, the distinguished journalist and current host of the El Fondo podcast in Colombia, will be with us a little bit late. She'll be joining in a few minutes. We're very pleased to welcome Glenda Gloria, the co-founder and executive editor of Wappler in the Philippines, and also to welcome Farhad Aladi, who serves as the chair of the Iraq Advisory Council. It is a particular honor that Uzra Zaya, a distinguished diplomat and lifelong peace activist who now serves as the U.S. Department of State's Undersecretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights is presenting our keynote speech. Before welcoming Uzra, we'd like to invite everyone to follow this discussion on Twitter with the hashtag Democracy and Peace USIP. Now we have the honor to turn to Uzra Zaya. Thank you, President Grant. Distinguished participants and guests, I'm pleased to speak with you today on how democracy can address conflict and how we can work together to strengthen democratic governance and peace. I wanna thank the U.S. Institute of Peace for convening this timely and important discussion. Organizations such as Freedom House and Varieties of Democracy are tracking a trend of democratic recession that now stands at 15 years. Democracies old and new, including our own, are threatened by authoritarianism, conflict, societal division, corruption, and declining faith in public institutions. Significant democratic backsliding is occurring in every region of the world as the number of liberal democracies fell from 41 in 2010 to just 32 in 2020. At the same time, government repression and exclusion are increasing around the world, exacerbating grievances and fueling instability. In the past 10 years, the number of countries where state-sanctioned murder, torture, and disappearance affect the entire population doubled, according to the political terror scale. And the number of countries engaged in systematic discrimination against ethnic minorities increased 13%, according to the Ethnic Power Relations Project. We've also seen elected governments displaced deficient and fraudulent elections, democratically elected leaders adopting authoritarian tactics to hold on to power, such as amending or flouting constitutional provisions on term limits, exclusion of women from decision-making, human rights protections under attack, security force abuses, broken ceasefires, and other situations contributing to democratic reversals and stalled peace processes. The international community also faces challenges that know no borders. This includes not only the COVID-19 pandemic, but also a significant economic downturn, record levels of displacement, spreading transnational conflicts, and a deepening climate crisis. This complex set of challenges may seem overwhelming, but we have a way forward through two broad approaches. First, 
we know that we must invest in conflict prevention and resilience building efforts. Progress towards democratic governance, peace and prosperity endures when countries undergo regular democratic transitions of power from one democratically elected government to another. Resist the lure of authoritarian models, proactively engage in conflict prevention and have systems in place to respond to climate disasters or health shocks. For the United States, our first 10-year strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability will guide our efforts to identify the underlying causes of fragility and conflict, foster greater transparency and partnership with governments, international partners, and other local and international stakeholders, encourage adaptive and locally based approaches to prevention and stabilization, and demand meaningful and measurable outcomes. President Biden is committed to the implementation of this strategy. Second, we know that we must demonstrate that democracy delivers for all people. We must ensure our efforts are inclusive and participatory from the start. And this is not simply about elections. It means establishing inclusive institutions and processes, particularly for women and members of marginalized groups, enabling people to be involved in decisions that affect their lives, ensuring public administration is transparent and accountable, and advancing the protection of human rights. This fosters societies that are resilient against authoritarian influence corruption, conflict, and both natural and human-made crises. Together, we must make the case to people all over the world that democratic governance, non-discrimination, and respect for human rights deliver. Democratic governance is the way to re reduce fragility, advance sustainable government, and mitigate risks of violent conflict and instability. President Biden has called it the challenge of our time to demonstrate that democracies can deliver by improving the lives of their people in tangible ways and tackling the greatest problems facing the world. He launched the Summit for Democracy, the first iteration of which occurs on December 9th and 10th, to serve as a rallying point to advance this goal. Summit participants are encouraged to make concrete commitments to support democratic renewal, aligned with the summit's three pillars. One, defending against authoritarianism. Two, addressing and fighting corruption. And three, advancing respect for human rights at home and abroad. Activists, advocates, and other members of civil society, like many of you here today, are essential to equitable, responsive, and legitimate governance. So we have an interest and a moral imperative to protect civic space and empower civil society organizations, allowing civil society to play its unique and positive role in democracy, especially during hard times. On behalf of the US government, we look forward to working side by side with you to demonstrate the critical role that civil society can play in ensuring democracies truly deliver 
during the upcoming Summit for Democracy, the year of action that will follow, and beyond. Thank you again for the opportunity to address you today. I look forward to hearing more about the lessons you've learned in joining democracy and peace and how the international democratic community can better support your efforts in this vital space. Thank you. For the next hour, we're going to spend time with each of our five very distinguished panelists. We'll start first with Ukraine, and then we'll move to Nigeria. We'll then have a discussion on the Philippines, on Iraq, and then we'll conclude with Colombia. We're going to ask each of our panelists to focus on two sets of questions. The first is to share candidly with all of us their analysis of the factors and dynamics which are putting pressure on the democracies that they represent. Secondly, we'll be asking each of our panelists to share candidly with all of us what they think the United States and other sister democracies around the world can and should be doing in order to help them ensure their country stays on a democratic path. We're very pleased to start first with Alexandra from Ukraine. Alexandra, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for providing me the floor. It's an honor to speak on this event. Uh, last week, we celebrated the anniversary of Revolution of Dignity in Ukraine. Eight years ago, people came out against the corrupt authoritarian regime that decided to stop European integration. They fought to live in a country where everyone's rights are protected. The government is accountable and controlled. The court are fair and independent. And the police don't crack down peaceful student demonstrators. And they paid a pretty high price for it. When the authoritarian regime broke down, Ukraine was given the opportunity to undergo democratic transformations. This was a direct danger to the authoritarian Putin regime. To stop Ukraine on this path, Russia occupied Crimea and launched a hybrid war in the Donbas. Thus, if during Euromaidan events we fought for our democratic choice, now in this war with Russia, we are fighting for the rights to have a choice as such. Ukraine faces two challenges. First, to build stable democratic institutions and to survive the war. Democratic transformations are hampered by occupation and war, the weakness of state institutions, low public legal awareness, and sometimes irresponsible attitude of the ruling elite. At the same time, maintaining alternation in government democratic elections and strengthening local communities as a result of decentralization reforms, as well as even small but positive changes in a number of indicators of the Freedom House annual report nations in transition under these difficult conditions is a significant achievement. This year, Putin published an article outlining his vision of Ukraine's history. He denies uh, the very existence of Ukraine and claims that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. 
The question that arises is why this article has appeared now. Probably because Russia is currently concentrating troops near the border with Ukraine. And according to intelligence reports, it's preparing to attack by the end of generally beginning of February. We all live in very interconnected world and only the spirit of freedom make it safer. There is a civilization war between authoritarian model and the values of democracy. And Ukraine is one of the core bridgeheads of this war. I think that United States together with its European allies in this situation must now publicly articulate a package of serious comprehensive sanctions to be imposed in response to Russia's new aggression in order to raise the price for a potential attack. Also, the United States, together with its European allies, needs to develop a long-term strategy to support democracy and economic growth in Ukraine. Given the large number of democratic feedback around the world, we need to redouble our efforts to strengthen Ukraine's democratic transformation. Ukraine's success will have an inevitable impact on the entire region where freedom in some countries is reduced to a prison cell size. I often mention the words of my colleagues, Russian human rights defenders. When I ask them what we can do to help them, they keep saying, be successful. Thank you very much. Alexandra, thank you very much. We would like to turn now to Idayat from Nigeria. Idayat Hassan is the director for the Center of Democracy and Development. Idayat, over to you. Thank you very much, Liz. Uh, it's a honor to be speaking here. And what is very important to note that this is the longest stretch of democracy Nigeria has actually experienced in over 61 years of its existence. Uh, we are talking about six electoral circle with the forthcoming elections during less than 14 months itself. But currently, it's not just about the failure of democracy to deliver developments to the people, but more about the raging conflict and insecurity pervading different parts of the entity called Nigeria. And importantly, there are lots of structural issues responsible for this. First and foremost is that of marginalization, both real and perceived. So we are talking about people feeling marginalized economically, politically, um, ethnically, socially on different bases in the country itself. And this has led to lots of non-state actors to all of a sudden evolve, taking up arms against the state. Another very important factor closely linked to that would be the uneven-handed of the Nigerian government. So one minute, Boko Haram people are said to get amnesty for the Eastern Security Network, in the, uh, which is a secessionist movement, the arms part of the secessionist movement, IPOB, in the Southeast, do not even get a seat at the table to dialogue. So this is very difficult for people to believe. Then you are talking about a high level of poverty and exclusion. 
in a country where more than 50% are young people, and they feel and they see on daily basis that the political class are plundering the commonwealth itself. This has allowed grievances to grow and translate into rebellion in the country. Now, while elections are important, and like I said earlier, we've had six elections, six, uh, these elections have also been a source of conflict, especially when results are disputed. And a very important one that comes here, of course, is the winner-takes-all attitude. And in reaction to it, protest movements is now becoming a very important thing in Nigeria. When you see the young people frequently going onto the streets to protest as a means of civil disobedience. But while you talk about this protest, what we should note is that with each protest, it becomes more brutal with more lives lost uh, successively, really. But all this violence we are talking about in Nigeria is nothing new. They can actually be classified as repeat violence. So when you talk about the um, conflicts or secessionist agitation, which is leading to a lot of deaths in the southeast part of the country, it evokes, it evolved from the arrested civil war between 1967 and 1970, and the refusal of any successive government to bring closure to this in such a way that justice is seen to be done. The same for the banditry, which is now in the news more than Boko Haram. This is a repeat violence with the last one being in 1972. The only thing that has actually changed is the scale and the numbers of actors involved in this violent conflict. And put together everything, you now have insecurity, you have more state actors all fighting. So Nigeria is not fighting one group like Boko Haram or the Islamic State in the West African province, but it, it's up in hands against the ESN, um, the bandits, the just every group, kidnappers in a country. And when you zero everything, it goes back to the lack of justice. The heavy-handed security approach towards curbing violent conflict itself, perceived marginalization, a broken justice system where citizens only see corruption and believe that justice delayed is already justice denied, or there is even an impossibility to actually experience justice in this entity called Nigeria. Now, immediately to the ask and dealing with it, I think three things are very, very important that the US government can actually do for Nigeria at this point in time. One, of course, is ensuring that there is civilian oversight over security forces. How do we get more people involved in that in such a way that we've, we prevent reciprocal radicalization, where more people will then keep picking up arms against the Nigerian state? The second issue is looking at the youth bulge, the poverty in the country, and seeming children, not even youth now, who are out of school and who lack health care system and jobs. Any response that the U.S. will be having in its plan is one that targets these sets of people to prevent violent conflict 
for becoming from becoming more aggravated in the future. And thirdly, and lastly, actually, her focus should not just be supporting elections work. It should actually be looking at the quality of democracy itself. And looking at the quality of democracy as a peace-building strategy and a conflict with, uh, prevention one, we have to put all our conflict prevention framework into that one that makes democracy more enduring and deliver to the people to prevent a breakdown into anarchy in the future. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. We're very pleased to turn now to Glenda Gloria in the Philippines. Glenda is the executive editor and co-founder of the exceptional news service, The Rappler. Glenda, over to you. Thank you. Good evening from Manila. Um, thank you for inviting me here. Um, it is worth noting um, at the start that five months from now, the Philippines will be electing a new president to replace Rodrigo Duterte. His daughter, after all, is running for vice president and the daughter's presidential candidate, and who is at present topping election surveys, is the son of the late dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. So to a large extent, at stake in the May 2022 elections is the 40-year-old democracy project in the Philippines, which started in 1986 when a people power revolution ousted the dictator Marcos. I'd like to summarize the current situation uh, through the lens, of course, of a journalist and, and, and cite four major uh, stumbling blocks to democracy as we now experience them. First is really the weak state accountability and continuing cultural impunity in the face of the crimes committed in the last six years under this regime. More than 20,000 people have been killed in the bloody drug war. And there is virtually executive capture of the criminal justice system. Law enforcement authorities who are behind these killings and attacks have not been held to account. In fact, the international community has shown uh, more concern. Um, the, the prosecutor's office of the International Criminal court has launched an investigation into the bloody drug war, but that investigation is getting a lukewarm support from the government. Second would be what I would call the militarization of the peace process with the communist insurgents in my country. This weakens civilian voices at no other time since we ousted the dictator. Um, there have been decades-long efforts to have a negotiated settlement with the communist insurgents. But this militarization of the peace process has allowed the military to bring the war beyond the battlefield, targeting civilians working in, in non-government organizations and various political parties. The third um, situation, I would suppose, is the weakening of the watchdog institutions, the media, civil society, and human rights movements brought about by the erosion of public sphere through state-backed attacks and propaganda, such attacks being enabled by technology. And I think this would be our biggest uh, stumbling block right now. 
The fourth would be outside Metro Manila and in the provinces. There's really a lack of rigorous oversight and transparency of social development projects in conflict areas, most especially in the Muslim South, where there is still uh, a Muslim rebellion and where um, situations thrive uh, that appeal to extremist ideology such as terrorism. And I think uh, thinking both as a journalist and a citizen of a democracy under siege and under attack, I could think of probably three um, uh, quick discussion points that we can uh, later on uh, expound on uh, what can be done. I think the biggest threat is really the manipulation of reality and social media, which we believe have, will have direct impact on the May 2022 presidential elections, which many of us believe is a make or break for this country. The battle for truth, after all, is not just journalism's battle now. And so what we'd like to see is um, for civil society, NGOs, media organizations to come together in meaningful conversations that would help carve a, a path that is more sustainable and more optimistic than what we have now. Um, at Rappler, for example, we have gone beyond exposing wrongdoing. Uh, as we speak, we have uh, convened uh, what we call the Hold the Line Coalition, which brings together lawyers, members of the academe, the NGOs, and journalists, um, both to plot uh, short-term and long-term plans to combat not just disinformation, but really to hold uh, platforms who really control our information highway now to, uh, to account. And last would be, I think this would come from, from the journalist in me. For journalists, we need to amplify each other. And I think what we would need is really support and encouragement for more, more collaborative work, such collaboration, not just within the Philippines or Southeast Asia, but with cross-border reporting in other parts of the country. I think this is very urgent because um, the business model uh, and media, as we know, is dying. And therefore, uh, what we would need is some space to grow again independent media that has been attacked and that has really suffered tremendously under this regime. Thank you. Linda, thank you very much. We're pleased to turn to Farhad Aladin, who is the chair of the Iraq Advisory Council. Farhad, over to you. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you for the invitation to speak here in this distinguished panel. Um, talking about democracy in Iraq, um, maybe uh, it's interesting in some way asking uh, to establish a democratic state in the Middle East is a tough ask uh, by any stretch of imagination. Having said that, uh, Iraq have adopted the uh, democracy uh, very well. We have held uh, five elections since 2005, and we had five handover, peaceful handover of power between one government to another. And interestingly enough, we um, October 10 was the latest election where we are still uh, working on, or Iraq is still working on 
ratifying the results and uh, getting into forming a new government and yet a new handover of power. But democracy in Iraq is not without its troubles, given that we live in a very troublesome region. And you have asked for uh, looking into the drivers that really put stress on the democracy process and so on. So I'm going to stick to that rather than anything else. And uh, I have identified uh, the four different uh, external and internal uh, drivers that affects the, the, the process itself. Uh, given that we are in a conflict zone and we have lived uh, in many wars since 2003, starting with the uh, Iraq liberation and, and what we call it the Gulf War, and after that we had the uh, the Al-Qaeda terrorists uh, taking over in some areas and, and all the conflict that followed. Then we had ISIS. Obviously, ISIS with occupying three governorates in Iraq was uh, very tough and what followed in the ISIS war. And that has created big divides in the society and we're still living with its aftermath, uh, uh, dealing with the, uh, with the aftermath of the ISIS war and the atrocities they committed. Um, a second one would be the US-Iran conflict where Iraq has become an arena for that conflict in many ways. And given that both sides have a huge leverage over Iraq and Iraqi politics, and each one pulling Iraq to its direction, and that created big trouble for Iraq and its democracy. And, and especially in the past where we see um, this uh, conflict reflected in the pulls and, and push for uh, in government formation, where one one party wants something and, and, and the other side wants something completely opposite. And that was vividly displayed in 2018, government formation. Thankfully, this time around, it looks like that they both uh, um, have a hand's length uh, uh, distance to this process until now. And from our conversation with both sides, that seems that they are not going to be diving into the same process this time again. So that, that would be a really important factor uh, in that point itself. And clearly the other thing that uh, affects the process, the democracy process in Iraq is sectarianism. Uh, uh, the Iraqi society, due to all the conflicts that it's lived through, uh, we are now living in a sectarian society in general where we are divided among many sects and, and perhaps the most uh, Obvious three is the Shia, Sunni, and Kurdish divide were uh, based on religion and nationality. And, and that has rooted down into the democracy process itself, where now we see that we have Shia parties, Sunni parties, and Kurdish parties. And we don't have really a cross-sectarian uh, party or coalition where they could come down to participate in the process and get votes. A Kurdish party will not get votes in in the Arab area, uh, a Shia party will not get vote in the Sunni area and so on. There has been some attempt to break this, uh, uh, this, this, this uh, sectarianism, but with a limited or no success. Um, although it's, it's very much present in the minds of the Iraqis, and many of the Iraqi nationals believe this is a really uh, not a healthy uh, um, fact to have within
in the society and within the political process. But nonetheless, uh, it is something that exists and, and need to be eradicated to and go to citizenship rather than sectarianism. Another driver that really puts a lot of pressure on the uh, um, on the democracy process is corruption and mismanagement. We have lived through various governments and, and uh, the political process has been uh, one of consensus. Uh, every government that we have formed in the past has been consensus among the political parties. And this has resulted in total mismanagement in the infrastructure and in reconstruction of Iraq after going through so many wars and obviously the uh, ISIS war and all that, and the corruption that also accompanied uh, um, this process. We have not been able to fully get rid of this, although there are calls for reform and there are calls for fighting corruption and so on. Uh, so that, that on its own uh, contributes to a lot of money, which is money from corruption, money from embezzlement that channels through the democracy process in a way that many candidates are able to spend big amounts of money or many political parties who are benefiting from the corrupt system that existed. Now they are funneling back some of the money into the elections and, and then create even more leverage and more power for themselves uh, uh, in, 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 in that uh, process. So it is something that we are looking into uh, uh, helping with that, or the reform could help in terms of uh, uh, correcting this aspect. But this is also the corruption, the mismanagement, uh, and the elitism that created uh, the process, created, uh, affects the uh, democracy process and the elections. Uh, the positive aspect of the latest election that we have seen, if I uh, mention, would be that the Iraqis now realize through the ballot box they can make change. We have seen uh, the protest movement in 2019 and resulted in the resignation of the government. And, and those protesters took part in the latest election and they have won uh, many, many seats through either running as independent or as a political party that derived from the, uh, the protest movement. And now that encouraged the others because the protesters were divided between those boycotting the election and those who took part. And now even those who boycotted the election are thinking to run in the next election. And we will have a, 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 a local council uh, or, uh, or provisional uh, election next year. Many of them now saying that we will take part in the upcoming local elections because now they see the fruit of the democracy and the fruit of, of the process where they could, you don't have to go through a revolution to make change, but you can go through the ballot box to bring about change. And change on the local level perhaps is, is an easier and better start to have. So all in all, in my opinion, the democracy process works in Iraq. It has its shortcomings here and there, but we have managed successfully to adopt it and, and to work with it. And hopefully it will continue uh, uh, in that way. And thank you. All right, thank you. Um, we're going to um, now turn to a, a second round of questions. And um, Alexandra, since you went first, we're gonna come to you uh, first with the second round. Um, we have two very interesting questions from um, our audience. 
One of them uh, picks up on a point that you raised about the pressure that Ukraine is under because of neighboring Russia. And the question is, how can you realistically expect to build and reinforce democratic institutions when your country is threatened every single day by the possibility of a major war? A second question has to do with your very striking comments about the expectations you have from the US, that the US will take the lead in putting together a package of sanctions on countries which are aggressing your democracy. And secondly, the expectation that the US can invest in a long-term strategy that will help to grow your economy and at the same time build institutions. Now, the question is, can you really trust that the U.S. will do that. It's a very strong question. Um, it's an uncomfortable one, but we'd be very interested in your reflections on both of those. Over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I, the first question, I think that it's existential question, but I will try to answer. I am a human rights defender, and uh, since the beginning of the war, I'm documenting war crimes uh, and other serious human rights violations. Uh, I spoke with uh, people who survived from captivity. It were men and women, even children. I spoke with the people who were beaten, who were raped, whose fingers were cut, who were smashed into wooden boxes, uh, who was tortured with electricity, uh, whose eyes were pulled out with spoon. So now in this war with Russia, with our neighbor, we are fighting not for only for our territories. We are fighting for our values and for our democratic choice and for the principle that human rights and human is a matter. So um, how uh, our allies and um, well-developed democracies around the world uh, can help us with a long term strategy or with an uh, announcing package of sanctions um, and why we ask for such uh, um, for such support. Uh, Ukrainians uh, will resist to Russians uh, aggression and we uh, don't want to transfer the responsibility to our shoulders. For sure Ukrainians will fight in for democracy and for freedom and for our independence. But the problem is that this is a problem, that this is a threat and this is a challenge which couldn't be solved in the, in, in the national borders. And that's why we need a reaction of international community, a, a, a real interference in this situation. If we look to Eurasia region, we will see that Authoritarian regime in our part of the world gained straight. Uh, the new gray zone will appear. And even in well-developed democracies, the populist movement uh, openly uh, questioned the universal standards of human rights and freedoms. And this make us all in one boat and make us thinking together how we will 
overcome this challenge together. As a human rights defender who documented war crimes in Ukraine and closely cooperate with human rights defenders from Russia, from Georgia, from Moldova, I had to um, admit that uh, when we cooperated with our colleagues from other countries, we underline the several dozens of people who committed war crimes in Crimea, in Donbas, in, in Transnistria, in Chechnya, in Abkhazia, and in Ossetia. And this means that Russia used the war like a geopolitical instrument to obtain their geopolitical goal. And this answer to the point that it's not only Ukrainian story. If we will not stop the circle of impunity, it will be only a matter of time which new gray zone in which country will appear. Thank you. Um, Alexandra, that was an, ex an extremely powerful uh, example that you gave of the way in which uh, the same networks of terror that appear in one country are being instrumentalized and appearing in many countries and the necessity of a coherent response across the democracies to respond to that. Thank you very much. We would um, now like to turn to Idaya in Nigeria. Um, Idaya, you, you said something that was just so striking right at the beginning of your intervention when you said, in the history of my country, this is the longest stretch of democracy that we've had. And then you went on to list a whole number of factors which are putting this stretch of democracy at risk. And you talked about the inconsistency of the government in the way that it deals with marginalized groups. You talked about the cycles of violence that have been generated by first protests, then the repression of those protests, and then new protests. You talked very importantly about the lack of civilian oversight over security institutions. And if I remember well, you characterized the justice system as a whole as being nearly broken. If you look at that list of all of the pressures on Nigerian democracy, and then you call for a coherent peace building strategy that addresses those, the immediate question that comes up is how are you gonna prioritize all of the challenges that you're facing? Of the many things that you describe, what are the things that need to be reformed and changed first? Over to you. Thank you very much. I think the first, it's simple, and it's actually the simplest, is about trust building. Trust building between the government and the government. At this point in time, there is a total breakdown of trust, and it's even intergenerational. So the young people who form, the, who are the bulk of the citizens in this country do not trust the government, do not even trust the old ones, uh, older generations. Every, at every decade, there is this divide. How do we rebuild trust? And that will be the work of the Nigerian government. And there are different ways of actually doing that. I think that it's now time for a dialogue to happen. A dialogue at all levels uh, between the government and the government. Uh, that's one. Then two, again, it will, have to, it will have to be democracy delivering development to the people, and in particular, security to citizens. To avoid a situation like we have seen in Guinea and in Mali of a 
military takeover. Those countries are not exclusively different from Nigeria or any other country in Africa. They have the same problems. And where people, the citizens themselves, are the people who should yearn for democracy. But if they have to fight to be secure, if they have to take up arms against, uh, to protect themselves with those fighting the state, definitely they will welcome a coup d'etat if it happens. So it's about resourcing, it is about oversight, it's about knowing that when there are actually conflicts in our countries, which is also shown itself up in most of Africa with the COVID-19 pandemic and enforcement of different COVID regulations or measures, that an heavy-handed security approach towards curbing violent conflict ends up in radicalizing the people. And this is where the oversight comes in, really in itself. How do we ensure that it is not just America that is oversighting uh, these people? They are not the one releasing the report for us to use, but they are giving capacity to civil society organization, to grassroots movement, to using those kind of um, networks like YALI, which they have actually created, is about having the citizens themselves, empowering the citizens to demand for democracy because the quality of citizenship will determine the quality of governance they will actually expect themselves, they will enjoy themselves. So we have to build the citizenry. And Uncle Sam will again have to come back and be who it is without pushing responsibility to other people. It's not because Africans actually want Uncle Sam to do all these things for us. It is generally based on the fact that the only thing the US holds against other systems even with the flaws in its own democracy itself, is the democratic credentials, its own democratic credentials. That is all what we look at. January could have happened, but we saw that in spite of that, with enduring institution, it fell as a bulwark against ensuring that authoritarianism never took hold in the United States. Idea, that's a, a, an extremely powerful argument for broadening the approach. It's not just that democratic governments help other democratic governments. It's that the peoples of a democracy help the peoples of other democracies. And that there's a constant focus in all of the peace building strategies and all of the pro-democracy movements to help the civil societies and the citizens of every other democratic country so they can do what's necessary to hold their own governments accountable. It's very powerful argument. We're going to turn now to um, Glenda in um, the Philippines. And, and Glenda, it was, um, I mean, when you talked about the executive capture of uh, your country and the way that that capture has accelerated the militarization of public order, has accelerated the use of the security apparatus for repressive means only. The way that um, information is being manipulated by forces which are not transparent and very difficult to regulate. Um, you know, I think all of us know and honor the work that you do, realizing that more journalists are being killed in the Philippines than anywhere else in the world. And it's in that vein that we would be particularly interested in your reflections on the responsibilities. What organizations like yours 
can do in order to keep promoting the democratic practice, even though you are doing so under conditions of nearly unimaginable repression. Glenda, over to you. Hi, Lisa. Um, really, we have the one of the biggest reasons why Rappler has survived the Duterte, if I may say that, um, is precisely our um, realization and recognition of the fact that this battle for democracy and for the truth, it's not journalism's battle alone. And therefore, even um, as we speak and, and we try to uh, engage our, our colleagues in the media, not just in the Philippines, but outside the Philippines, that for journalism to regain its public space in the public sphere, it really has to engage communities of action. It really has to go out of its way to um, uh, help educate people beyond publishing stories and beyond telling the stories of the nation. Is really um, engaging communities and networking with the academe, with the Filipino youth. You know, we've gone out of our way to hold forums um, public advocacies outside the newsroom just to talk about this information. Because when you live with this information for six years, this information becomes a reality. And that reality will reshape our future. And therefore, um, that's the kind of engagement that we want and what we hope other journalists would, would recognize as a valuable contribution to democracy is to really engage non journalistic sectors who are also fellow democracy frontliners, as you may see. Glenda, thank you. Glenda, can we ask, do you feel that um, other journalists around the world are with you in that? Are you getting the kind of support that you would hope and expect and need? Well, it's far from ideal. Um, I think each um, uh, country has its own unique problems vis-a-vis -vis its uh, journalism profession. Um, we're, in a way, we're fortunate that we have um, a history of a democra democracy project in the Philippines. The Philippine media has always been an activist media. It's always taken pride in its role in transitions from dictatorships to democracy. Other countries have don't have the same uh, experience. And but the effort there is really has to be something international and the support has to come from outside. The reason Rappler, one of the reasons Rappler has also survived the attacks is precisely the global spotlight on us. And without that global spotlight, there would have been no um, support that, that only the global community could, could give in certain situations, such as when your president closes access to um, to other channels of grievances, such as when your president wants to shut you down or, or uh, controls Congress and tells Congress to, to end the franchise of the country's TV network. It's, it's difficult, but I think um, it's far from ideal, but I think we're headed there towards more collaborative effort with other journalists in other parts of the world. 
Linda, thank you. Farhad, we'd like to um, reflect with you on uh, several of the points that you raised in your very interesting comments. Um, you know, you talked about being an 18-year-old democracy and how much progress has been made in the 18 years, including the glowing recognition that change is something which can be brought about through engagement with electoral processes through the ballot. But what was very, very interesting about your presentation was your honesty in saying, look, my country, my democracy right now is in many ways um, a proxy battlefield between a neighboring very powerful force and the United States. And that our ability to develop democratically is shaped by that context. If you allow us, we'd like your reflections on what you would like these two powers to do that would give you more democratic space to develop the democracy in Iraq as the people of the country want? Yes, certainly keeping Iraq out of that conflict is key. I mean, Iran-US conflict is not only about Iraq. It's it's much bigger, much bigger domain where it spans to or more or less the entire Middle East region, uh, certainly Levant and and, and the Gulf, and, and then you have uh, Yemen, Bahrain, and Lebanon, and so on. So it's it's a much wider issue, as well as the atomic uh, saga and JCPOA and so on. So Iraq is probably a small part of it. However, Iraq has become an arena. And, and what we ask uh, both sides is really keep Iraq out of this conflict, where whatever you are engaged in Iraq should be about Iraqis, we have asked the Americans many times over, you shouldn't look at us through the prism of Iran. So your policy about Iran should not be reflecting on whatever you do in Iraq. And I must admit that uh, lately, and especially with the new administration, this is uh, nearly entirely shifted, where now they have uh, Iraq policy as Iraq policy rather than Iraq-Iran policy. Uh, so we're glad about that. At the same time, uh, the United States engaged with Iraq about with the strategic dialogue. What I would like to see is really shift U.S. US policy to shift from military uh, more to investment, education, health, and so on. There are so many areas where United States could help Iraq to develop, and it, it, it could very well uh, help its democracy. I mean, you have uh, asked uh, to, to expand on that in, 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 in the brief you got. And I would say the uh, uh, United States could easily, the government, support organizations like yourselves, USIP, also the good work that organizations like NDI and RII did during these elections, where they, they engaged with the candidates, they engaged in the process, they trained new candidates, uh, and provided uh, healthy support within the democratic process uh, by really uh, hiring the, uh, increasing the education level of the, uh, of the candidates into how to organize campaign, how to uh, deliver messages, how to uh, use the media, and so on. So this is really great work. Also engaging and supporting the international effort like the UNAMI and the funds that the United States provided and the passing of the Security Council decision to support the Iraqi election, the United States played a big role in that. And obviously this is important to continue. Uh, so these are all really in a way, I would say practical 
steps that the United States could take to help Iraq uh, uh, and its democratic process to prosper. All right, thank you. Alexandra, um, you said something very interesting about how Putin describes your country as not a real country, as being divided. We know that for seven years, there's been a terrible conflict in Donbass. And that part of the justification which Russia has given is to say, look, this is a divided country and the people in Donbass really, they wanna be with us, not with Ukraine. We'd be very interested in your reflections on the role that that conflict has played in shaping the national identity in Ukraine and shaping democratic processes. Alexandra, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to stress your attention that the head of a Russian army, Gerasimov, told that the new weapon of, uh, of army is uh, the battle of narratives. So symbolical things, the battle of different so-called truths, uh, become even more important than military actions. And uh, that's why when we speak about uh, Russian perspective uh, on Ukraine, we speak about Russian propaganda. Uh, they use it very perfectly. Uh, if we will see the sociological pool inside Russia in 2014, 94% uh, of Russians supported occupation of Crimea because it was presented like peaceful uh, reunion of uh, peninsula and uh, the Russian television uh, didn't show the, um, the peaceful demonstration for Ukrainian sovereignty. The Russian television uh, didn't show uh, the kidnapping and abduction of Crimean Tatars who tried peacefully resist occupation and, the, and other things which is going on on peninsula and which we and my colleagues uh, who have worked as a mobile group on peninsula on that time see on our own eyes. Also, uh, if we look to the impact of Russian propaganda, even to Russians itself, uh, that uh, uh, year, 2014, 72% of Russia told that they are able to war for war with Ukraine. And this is a dramatic uh, number of percentage of neighbor people who are ready to fight with Ukraine. Um, the the uh, sad uh, joke on that moment was that um, Russia have already invaded Ukraine and um, they are in the war, but don't understand it. So uh, if Russia can, uh, and Kremlin, uh, because of uh, liquidation, any independent media and channels and instrumentalized Russian history like a weapon uh, can impose a narrative to Russians, they try to do, them, to, to do uh, the same on Ukrainian land. And not only in Ukraine, we see the Russian propaganda uh, in Western countries, in EU, in US. And uh, I would like to conclude that I think that it's okay for democracy to have different point of view, that it's okay for democracy to have different religions. It's okay for democracy to have different um, ideological concept, but 
it's okay for democracy to have a general frame of peaceful recognition, of respect to a different point of view, of uh, using the law to uh, resolve different conflict if it's a peer. And that's why um, this div div division is artificially created division. Because when we speak about different language, different um, religion, or different ideological concept, we speak about democracy itself. Thank you. Alexander, very well said. And it leads us far out. If we could come straight back to you, because one of the arguments that you made was that um, politics in Iraq continue to be shaped by sectarianism and by a very clear sense of cultural and identity and purpose and resources that are linked to your religious community. Can you see a way in Iraq where political movements can be developed out from that, away from that, towards something that's more universal and cuts across different religious and ethnic communities? Farhat, over to you. Thank you. Um, I would say in the short term, maybe not, but in the long term, yes. There are more and more movements and political parties who are definitely looking into this and trying to do it. We have had uh, examples this election where the Kurdistan Democratic Party had uh, candidates in Anbar province, for example. They had in Karbala and certainly have uh, uh, winning candidates in Mosul, for example where they are, the candidate is an Arab and running on the KDP list. Um, the same thing has happened in the past, but not to a major success uh, the other way, where the Arab party running candidates in Kurdistan, where it is totally locked for the Kurdish, Kurdish uh, parties. Maybe on the political party level is not so easy, but it may be an easier uh, option would be to have cross-sectarian coalition uh, where they run on the same platform, but different parties. And and there was an attempt by uh, uh, the, the Hikma leader, Sayyid Ammar al-Hakim, he tried twice now, tried to create a, a, a pan-Iraqi coalition, but unfortunately um, it didn't succeed. Uh, so in, in many ways, I would say uh, Iraqis are more aware of sectarianism being a hindrance, being an obstacle, in the way of developing the country. And sometimes there's a big threat. And we have seen it in the past. We have seen Kurdish Arab, in a way, Kurdish movements fighting the government. Um, and then we have seen the sectarian conflict and killing in the back in 2006 and seven, where it was, became very strong. And now uh, it's a lot less uh, as Iraqis really more and more aware of the threat that sectarianism brings. So hopefully in the future, uh, uh, we will have it, um, that we will have cross-Iraq, cross-sectarian party or coalition. Bara, thank you. Idia, you um, raised a very interesting point. You said, if we're really talking about democracy, it's not just about elections. And there was a very gentle implication that many other sister democracies in the world, when they're talking about solidarity with other democratic countries, that's the primary focus. And you made an argument that it's hard to, to win allegiance and confidence in democracies if the security forces are predatory and if there aren't services being delivered and if there aren't jobs. 
bearing all of that in mind, what would you like to see the U.S. do that doesn't just focus on elections, that takes the broader approach to democratic development that you've suggested? Thank you very much, Liz. I think what is very important is that election is just the beginning. It's just one of those things that is happening now for people to tick the box and claim to be liberal democracy. But our democracy itself has got its futures. And one of the most fundamental is those rights, rights protection, for instance. What are we doing to ensure that the right to life, the right to food, or puts the one, for instance, that is enshrined in chapter four of Nigerian constitution implemented? Now, when we go away from rights and food or infrastructure, which democracy claim that they provide, any type or form of government can actually produce, provide infrastructures to the people. But rights, it's something that cannot be taken away. That's what really symbolizes democracy to the people. That's what guides the demand for democracy. And here in Africa, there are some things that are very, very important, a rule of law itself. Most of our countries are governed as a rule by law system, not the rule of law. How will Uncle Sam help in terms of guiding towards rule of law? Because once we have it, the laws in book have been implemented, then half of these problems would actually be solved. Because when you look at all what are the why are, what are the grievances of the people, it's closely related to it, and they are in our law books. They are provided for in different statutes, but they are not actually being implemented. Justice is very important. Justice delayed is justice denied. Most of the root causes of conflict that is plaguing um, the world presently, has it got its roots in injustice? A lack of justice system that works for the poor? Justice itself, even accountability for all the monies that are actually being stolen. So we have to focus on justice and accountability. And when we talk about justice and accountability, it's not just training judges, it's not just providing facilities, but also ensuring that the sanctions regime also comes in. But sanctions, like my colleague earlier spoke about, should target directly the people who are benefiting from this disorder, not the one that actually affects the citizens itself. So how much do we use the Magnitsky law in the United States to attach to, the, uh, to all the look of corruption uh, is one again. I've already spoken about the basics, which is people to people, which is empowerment. I think there are some things we cannot forego. Then when it comes to security sector, Africom has got a very good opportunity. It's not, the focus should be on curriculum development with the training schools where some of these issues and challenges can be rightly invited in there during training. It's not about having um, fling talk or having some of these trainings, which will benefit just some few sets of people. That is becoming counterproductive. And it's also in a country or in a world where disinformation is the order now. All those beneficiaries, if you ask me in West Africa, what we basically say is that who is the leader, the junta leader in Mali, 
the junta leader in Guinea, they were all trained by the U.S., and that is gaining ground and currency. But if you train all the soldiers, you develop a curriculum, you collaborate, it means that civil-military relationship will actually be better. It will be factored in, and we are changing norms such that collective approach will go a long way more than focus on individuals in security sector reform. Yeah, thank you. And it's an important and humbling reminder to the U.S. about the um, implications of the way in which we train security forces abroad. And if we do that badly, what the consequences are. That leads us to a final set of comments and reflections. We're nearly at the end of our session, and we'd like to ask each of our colleagues, Glenda, we'll start with you if we may. President Biden has said that a commitment to democracy is one of the hallmarks of his foreign policy and his security policy as the president of the United States. He is holding the first set of events linked to what will be a year-long set of discussions, conversations, and events focused on promoting democracy everywhere. Glenda, what is your expectation for this year-long process of a summit, and what do you most want to see out of it? Starting with you, Glenda. Alex, my expectation for the summit is, is are two things. First is really the focus on how to clean up the information ecosystem that impacts not just journalists, but activists, citizens, and all democracy frontliners. Second is for this kind of summit to be institutionalized in very specific countries that are under siege and for that for those agreements if any to be cascaded down to those countries and be reflected in the way um, um, citizens are pr protected in the way media should be supported um, um, especially those under attack glenda thank you Alexandra, your expectations for the summit. Um, uh, I want to say that our world are rapidly changing and nobody knows the future. But there are a lot of things which still is stable and have no limitation of national border. And I really expect that this summit will remind about such kind of things. Solidarity, human dignity and freedom. Very well said. Farhad, your expectation. Well, I, I have a hope rather than expectation. Hopefully that the conflict and the, that the rhetoric that is used um, among these leaders to be a lot less and more focused on, on, on dialogue and cooperation uh, than anything else. Because whatever they say and whatever they do reflects directly on especially on the third world country, especially in our region in the Middle East, and have negative or positive effects. So hopefully that they will come out in agreement and in a united wording of whatever, or at least they can uh, put their differences on hold for the time being with all the challenges that facing the world with the pandemic, the economic crisis and everything else. All right, thank you. And finally, Idia, your expectations. What do you hope for? I think um, I'm quite hopeful of this. Um, 
summit. And I think first and foremost, I, it's what is actually putting out to the people that democracy is not a given, that it actually has got to be nurtured. And that at the end of this summit, we would have the leaders coming out to acknowledge that yes, democracy is actually en encountering challenges, but this is a new beginning to foster democracy, to foster development for the people of the world. Thank you. You know, when the U.S. Institute of Peace decided to hold this side event ahead of the Summit for Democracy, one of the things that we wanted to do was to celebrate the activists and the civil society leaders in democracies across the world who every single day fight for democracy. It's a way that we can salute Alexandra in Ukraine, Idiot in Nigeria, Glenda in the Philippines, Farhad in Iraq. And by saluting you to salute everyone across the world who knows this is the best form of government and who is prepared every day in every way to make it a reality. We want to thank all of you for being with us and everyone who has joined us for this discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.